This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Feldman Show, The Majority Report, Countdown, The Daily Show, The David Packman Show, Mumi Abu-Jamal, YouTube user Ransacked Room, The Onion Radio News, The Progressive, and The Young Turks with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report. Thanks to the Occupy Wall Street movement, Americans have finally taken notice of the rampant economic inequality, corporate greed, and government corruption perpetrated against the bottom 99% by the top 1%. And that's all well and good. But what about the forgotten victims? What about the bottom 99% of the top 1%? Hello, I'm Tad Winthorpe, founder and CEO of Occupy Beverly Hills. Those of us in the bottom 99% of the top 1% are sick and tired of playing a game that's rigged against us. And we plan to occupy Beverly Hills until the top 0.01% gets the message. If the founding fathers knew how many hardworking Americans have to timeshare a jet instead of owning one outright, they'd roll over in their mausoleums. Occupy Beverly Hills will not be silenced. From the birth of our movement to our latest setback, when security evicted us from the Bel Air Country Club because we accidentally brought in a Jew. Please, join us this Saturday afternoon when we plan to occupy the Barneys on Wilshire, followed by a leisurely dinner occupation of Spargo, if we can get a table near the front. And if you still haven't satisfied your hunger for justice, you can always help us occupy Sprinkles for some delicious cupcakes. With your help... Our children and grandchildren and their au pairs can grow up in a world where they spend their winters on a private island instead of St. Bart's. Occupy Beverly Hills. We are the 0.99%. You've been listening to Tad Winthorpe, founder and CEO of Occupy Beverly Hills. Thank you, Morgan. You're a credit to your race. down at uh, Occupy Wall Street on Sunday. I guess it was Sunday. Uh, hanging out. My wife and my daughter were there, and then I was hanging out with uh, Jeff. He's been doing some uh, reporting from there for us, uh, updating us on what's going on there. Uh, I ran into uh, Lee Stranahan, who uh, has a blog. Uh, and uh, this guy, Brandon Darby. So they interviewed one woman uh, who, the video is now on Breitbart.com. Stranahan never posted it to his own blog. I want you to listen to this audio and understand this video is now on uh, Breitbart.com. And Stranahan did not write the article that goes with it. Breitbart did. And... 
Let's first hear the clip. Affairs working group, and we're trying to figure out what to do about. I mean, I understand drug addiction. I had a problem with myself, but at the same time, it's putting all these people in danger. That um, there's sexual assault going on. We're trying to deal with that. I've seen it. Uh, mostly drunk guys going and groping girls. There was a guy that got raped too here. Um, a deaf, deaf uh, younger man. Um, when you say drunk guys groping girls, so would you say that right now Stop. with the current system that um, that is uh, Brandon Darby's voice? Go ahead. They have that it's unsafe for women. Yeah, there's a there's a, actually that's been a problem for the past like three weeks or four weeks. There's actually uh, a um, section of the park that it says side for well it's gender neutral, um, but it, they have people watching while people are asleep to make sure they're safe. So. So to get this clear, people have to watch because there's been groping incidents and a, you said a deaf guy was raped? Yeah. And how long have you been here? Um, I, I mean, I've been here pretty much since the first day. I came on the first day. I wasn't here for a week and a half. I got sick. I was in the hospital. But I've been here pretty much. So the guy, I mean, did, did, these get, did that get reported to the police or did that stay inside the car? Well, okay, I'm not sure for that particular incident. I, incident, I, yeah, no, I, that might have stayed inside the camp. There, the problem that we have been dealing with, like I said, in community affairs, we've tried, and some people have tried that. Actually, a girl got punched in the face by a guy, um, and she tried going to the cops. She had to go to four cops before one of them would help her out, and that's also a problem. People have been trying to tell the cops, you know, we don't want these people here who are causing problems. Can you take this guy? And they kind of just ignore it. You know. so, but does the working group or the overall organizing body, do they encourage or discourage people to go to the police and use the state? Um, they encourage it, but you know, at the same time, it, it hasn't proved you know beneficial most of the time. There have. Okay, so uh, what we learned from this woman is that allegedly a deaf man was raped. Uh, she doesn't know anything else about it beyond that point. She doesn't know anything else about it. Uh, she knows that someone was punched in the face and they tried to go to the cops and the cops wouldn't do anything about it. She knows that the park is providing security and that the organizers of Occupy Wall Street, or at least the people of the GA, are encouraging people to go to the police. Uh, when they have a problem. So the thesis that Darby was telling me about, and you know, uh, members will hear the, the video, is that he felt that um, they weren't doing enough. He was concerned that the organizers were not allowing the police to do their job and were not protecting anyone. Uh, now, what would you do if you were reporting on this story? You found a woman who you don't know. Would you go then to the police to see if there was a rape charge filed? Would you say, can you point us to the person who was raped? Is there anybody else who can actually provide any other sourcing for your story? You would ask that question. And so I asked, 
before uh, today, I asked Lee Stranahan. I told him, I will be talking about it most likely today, the video, on Twitter. Did you do any reporting, i.e., check with police, getting a confirming source on any of it? I said the same thing to Brandon Darby. I'm discussing this video today. Did you do any reporting, i.e., check with cops, get a second source on any of this? Here is what uh, Brandon Darby had to say. Okay, Sam Cedar, as usual, you ask a rude, demeaning, slanted question. <laughs> <laughs> what? So you get a sense of where this guy's coming from. Uh, Stranahan said, um, some of that stuff is a job for regular media. Not bullshit artists like us. That's basically what he's saying. Yes. And uh, then he asked me, are you putting me on or just talking about me? And I wrote back, I asked him the question again. Did you do any other reporting? It's a simple yes or no question. It's only slanted to the extent that I'm asking if you did any other reporting. They clearly didn't. Or they're going to choose to uh, put it out later. Or it's just a job for regular media to do. Our job is just to take a random woman and put an assertion out there. Now, it seems to me that Stranahan or Darby could go and get a job with the Fox News affiliate in Baltimore that also reported on a supposed rape without doing any reporting. Now, it's quite possible this rape took place. But you see Lee Stranahan bemoaning, why isn't any of the lefties talking about this? Well, because there's no substantiation. There's none. She's a winner in the crowd. She lost something inside. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. What is the message that drew you to the protest? The suffering. The, the, the suffering that these people were willing to endure, not for their own benefit, but for social justice for everyone. A lot of people see that iconic image of you being hauled away in your police uniform, and it, and it strikes them, that it really sort of strikes a chord. What is it about your background as a police officer that made you particularly sympathize with this movement? I saw a tremendous amount of suffering. Nineteen of my years was spent in the most economically depressed areas of Philadelphia, and I saw unimaginable suffering. What was your response to the uh, UC Davis pepper spraying incident? Um, uh, have you had a chance to see the, the pepper spray photos? What, what, what did you think when you first heard about it and, and saw those images from UC Davis? Disbelief. Outrage. Uh, this man is a sociopath. He should not only lose his job, he should be charged for assault and uh, tried. And I don't think this man, perhaps this man doesn't even belong in society. And when you see that he's wearing a police uniform, and you wore the uniform for so many years, what goes through your mind? Well, there's always, there's always going to be some bad apples in any profession. 
Uh, but the, with law enforcement, it's one of the most important professions to reduce greatly the number of bad apples. In your view, you served in Philadelphia, but Mayor Bloomberg here in New York, is he misusing the police force? And if so, how? I have criticized the, uh, the destruction of Zuccotti Park, and the criticism is solely directed toward Mayor Bloomberg. He is the one that set the order out to do that. Before this happened, there were strategic meetings, numerous, with uh, Mayor Bloomberg, his top officials, top law enforcement officials, and even the sanitation officials. Everybody was involved, and everything, every angle was covered. And at the end of it, he put his stamp on it. He is responsible. And then he says, he tries to come out with the fact that I'm responsible, it's the macho authoritarian image. Well, what's he going to say? I'm not responsible? I had nothing to do with it? As far as the, the raid itself, a lot of the uh, apparently thousands of books that were at the People's Library at Zuccotti Park, those are now missing. The police, the administration, the city administration cannot account for what happened to them. There are some allegations that they were simply thrown away. Is that standard procedure when a raid is conducted to simply throw books away? No, that was, that was conducted that way again because of the mayor. The standard conduct here is if it's not an illegal weapon, if it's not stolen property, if it's personal property that people have a right to own and maintain, you have to give the person a property receipt. That, there's a number on that. They get a copy. The other copy gets put around the property. It's taken away, and at a later date, they can receive, uh, keep, get it back. What have the conversations been like? between you and other police officers, particularly those who were arresting you? Uh, there was, <laughs> well, uh, it was basically silence, uh, but one officer did say that on the sly that I had the um, testicles of an elephant. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think, do you get this, and tell me the reaction of, of the Occupy Wall Street activists when they see here's a former police officer joining their ranks. Well, at first, and I, I fully expected this. It was like, is this a reverse psychology type of thing, that he's not the scraggly-looking guy trying to infiltrate. So maybe now they're going to use this guy, but he's still working for the police. So it took a while. And uh, I never asked to join any meeting. I showed up anonymously. I took my raincoat off. I was there. I held my sign. And then I left. I never asked to participate. Just recently, I was asked to participate in the first, uh, quote, General Assembly meeting that they have. Take me again back to your arrest, what you were doing, what happened, how they handled you, what the circumstances were. It was a perfectly legal arrest. I committed civil disobedience by sitting in the street and refusing to move. Uh, they, 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 the conduct of the police in arresting me and all the protesters I saw that were arrested was exemplary. And I will say, though, that day that they, the moment that I was walking across that intersection uh, was the proudest moment of my life. How so? Because I thought I was doing the greatest thing I've ever done. And I've, I've had many academic achievements uh, recognized, uh, professional achievements, but I considered that to be the most important thing I ever did. And it sounds like you don't have a problem with police arresting people who commit peaceful acts of civil disobedience walking in the middle of the street. Your main issue, though, is when they're going through and tearing down Zuccotti Park or when they're mishandling people in the course of those arrests, that's where things have gotten so out of control. Yes, and the, it's, not the, it's not the blue shirts that's responsible for that. I was, one thing I was amazed at in seeing all the pictures was the amount of white shirts. White shirts are the supervisors. The blue shirts are the frontline fighters. White shirts are there to supervise. 
and they have got to stand in the back. They can't be having the urine thrown on them, the rocks and bottles thrown on them. They have to have the clear mind. And if they're not enduring that type of abuse, they can maintain a clear mind. And that way they can look and see what's going on that shouldn't be going on and then step forward with a clear mind to stop it. When you're involved with the arrest and the fighting, who's supervising? We have to save the world and bathe ourselves with love because love is all we need. Except that love isn't really all we need. We need compassion and we need empathy and we need love a little bit and we need some money. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. We all have. Occupy Wall Street. It was born out of the loftiest of ambitions. We're trying to build a new society. All equal and civilized with each other. An open, horizontal, leaderless process. And two nights ago, the occupation ended. But maybe it was a good thing. As it dragged on, the movement had been in danger of becoming the very thing it was fighting against. The more people that came, the more people kind of like segregated into like their own little groups. The park kind of just split in half. Up there is like um, where the college hipsters that live in Brooklyn uh, go and uh, try to rule the park from, you know. And down here it's more of the poor people's encampment and uh, that, it's kind of contentious. Occupy Wall Street was divided by class. On the one side, the elites with their library, Apple pop-up store, and bike-powered espresso machines. On the other, the downwardly mobile with their drum circles. This is the ghetto. And then what do you call it up top? Uh, that's more of like the aristocratic side, like the Upper East Side. Okay. You have, you know, the West Enders and the East Enders. They're just kind of making decisions without the general consensus of everybody in the park. So let me get this straight. You've been here for eight weeks and you already have a ghetto. Well, I mean... I headed uptown to see how the upper crust felt living next to the ghetto people. What's the deal with down there? Um, they're also members of our society. I think in any community, whether it be city, whether it be uh, Zuccotti Park, you uh -huh. have areas that are a little quieter, areas uh -huh. that are a little louder. Oh we my god, have... your political correctness is, you're just blowing up like a helium balloon. You're trying so hard not to say it. Areas of our park that are inhabited by perhaps younger, more boisterous, energetic people. Is there a course in condescension that everyone is taking here? Has a good idea ever come out of the bottom half of the park? I think they do on, uh -huh. on occasion without them even knowing how good their ideas are. Sometimes they come up with good ideas. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Can you give me an example of that? Um, that would probably be hard. I headed back downtown to see how the moocher class defended itself. How many hours of work did you put in today? Hours of work have I put in today? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure yet. Have you put in any hours of work today? I don't keep track of time while I'm here. What percentage of the 99% are those Ivy League ass? 
uptown. I would say like 15. 15 percent of the park. 15, yeah. Elitist. Yeah. Yeah, but when everything comes down and it gets scary and everybody doesn't know what to do, what do they do? They call on us. Oh, could oh. you help us out? But perhaps the ghetto people didn't understand how hard the 15% of the 99% was working for them. I want, I'm here fighting for society where everyone has access to the goods of life. Would you share your iPad too with one of those shiftless hobos down in Bumtown? No, but I do think we should live in a society where everyone has access to technology and goods that everyone can use. So it's not so much about sharing, it's about everybody having an iPad too. Or at least everybody having access to the material wealth of life, okay, except, not just a few people. Except for yours. Well, it's a personal possession. I'm talking, I'm more against private property, not personal property. Clearly, it would be difficult to accomplish their goals in this contentious environment. Fortunately, they had a solution. This is the space where our various committees and action groups meet to discuss the things they're working on and to develop proposals for the General Assembly. Where are we? We are at 60 Wall Street. Yeah, we're in the lobby of the Deutsche Bank building. Holy sh**. Okay, I'm sorry. So the big decisions about Occupy Wall Street are being made in the atrium of the Deutsche Bank building. That's correct. I'm sorry. Is my, is my nose bleeding? No, no. Just, it's good. Because I feel like an aneurysm yeah, yeah. <laughs> just exploded in my head. Mm -hmm. It made sense. Here, decisions could be made quietly and out of the sight of the masses. Okay, does the drum circle know that we're all here right now? In any case, both the uptown elitists and the downtown poors can agree. The occupation ended too early. They didn't even have time to develop a middle class for this new society to crush. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Have a soft brawl to Wall Street begging for change. And was the change we were supposed to believe in circuit the campaign? Glenn Greenwald is with us. He's author of the new book With Liberty and Justice for Some. He's also a contributing writer over at Salon.com. And I want to talk to you, Glenn, about immunity and impunity in elite America, how the legal system was deep six and Occupy Wall Street swept the land. The most interesting point that I, I took from it is that income and wealth inequality have been present for a really long time in the United States. So that that alone, even though it's kind of become the de facto number one cited reason for Occupy Wall Street, in your opinion, can't really be enough to have spurred this incredible coming together of events that are these protests. So, number one, what else has been a factor? But more interestingly, number two, why has that become such a convenient and popular number one reason that we're hearing? Right. Well, it's not just that income inequality and wealth inequality have been in the United States for a long time, although that is true. What also is true is that it has been 
significantly increasing for several decades. So the trend line has been towards greater and greater levels of inequality. And yet you didn't really see a sustained protest movement over inequality. And I think the reason for that is because Americans are basically inculcated, for better or for worse, to accept not just the inevitability, but the virtues of inequality, of wealth inequality and outcome inequality. So, for example, when someone like Steve Jobs dies with $7 billion or $8 billion in net worth, even though huge amounts of joblessness and homelessness and foreclosures and the like are sweeping the land, most people don't begrudge that because there's this sort of embedded political value in the United States that inequality is legitimate as long as it's fair and just. And I think that's really the key behind this protest movement and what has so radically changed is the perception, obviously correct in my view, that these inequalities are no longer the byproduct of merit or hard work or deserved uh, achievement, but instead are really is really the byproduct of cheating, of, of people shielding their ill-gotten gains, and, and most of all, using their superior political and financial power to exempt themselves from the rule of law, from the, the rules of, of society to which the rest of us are bound so that these inequalities are no longer legitimate but are illegitimate. And I think that's really what's sustaining the protest. And one of the reasons why you don't hear much about that and why the media has an interest in portraying this as nothing more than just sort of anger over inequality unto itself is because one of the ways of demonizing the protest or dismissing it is to say that it's nothing more than this sort of socialist or communist anger from the 1960s over the fact that some people have a lot and lazy and, and, and worthless people have very little. Um, and I think that's clearly not what the protest movement is about by and large. It's about the fact that, for example, the people who collapse the world economy through their illegality and criminality have not paid any price but instead have prospered. You know, what I think is interesting is that there's 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 uh, several layers, actually, to the defenses and criticisms of Occupy Wall Street. And we've actually now seen on Twitter over the weekend, I got a ton of messages after a piece we did talking about media coverage of the Tea Party versus media coverage of Occupy Wall Street. And I got a serious email. It wasn't a parody. It wasn't sarcastic saying, look at how many people have been arrested at Occupy Wall Street and look at how many people were arrested at the Tea Party protest. You guys got to be nuts for thinking there's any anything about the people happening at Occupy Wall Street, they're all getting arrested. And it's impossible for that. I, there's nothing I can say to that person to explain to them how actually the, the disparity in the arrests is indicative of the problem, not of how great the Tea Party is. I've lost that person, right? I can't bring them back. Well, you know, of course, that's true. And there's, you know, one of, I mean, but I will say this. I mean, one of the driving attributes of the Occupy movement that, in my view, makes it so worthwhile and compelling is that it really is a protest from the political and legal culture as a whole, from political and legal institutions. So it's really intended to exist outside of the legal framework, um, whereas the Tea Party movement Certainly, there was lots of civil disobedience going on there. People were bringing guns. It was much more threatening and disruptive in its own way. Um, but I think that the Occupy movement really was intended and is intended um, to purposely create a space that doesn't exist within our prevailing legal institutions. And so the fact that people are getting arrested is certainly part, in part due to the fact that the status quo authorities see people who are protesting inequality as being um, just kind of troublemakers and antagonizers and people who really deserve to be in, in jail. There's definitely that bias. But a part of it is is that the, the occupations are by design um, be, be growing 
without legal sanction. Um, and so the, the more threatening they become to those in power, I think it's just inevitable that those in power are going to start to treat it as being threatening and, and to use their force and coercion against it, which includes arrest. But the one thing I will say is that, you know, by and large, although the media reaction has been quite negative and scornful and patronizing, polls continuously show that large pluralities, if not majorities, are sympathetic to the message of the Occupy movement because most people do indeed know that our legal and, and, and political institutions are radically broken and that meaningful change is, is possible only by working outside of them. Sure. And it's I mean, it's no surprise when we look over the years at polls fairly asked polls asking people, do you think the government has a fundamental responsibility to provide you health care? And the overwhelming majority of people, usually two thirds or even more, do think so. But you don't see that reflected in the politicians that are elected. You don't see that reflected in the policy that is proposed in any kind of serious way other than, you know, every once in a while, Dennis Kucinich mentioning it. So it should be no surprise to us that policy does not at all reflect the will of the people, does it? Well, but this is, you know, that's an important point about why the occupation movement has emerged and why it continues to flourish and, and the driving force behind it. Of course, politicians do go before the public and claim that they share the sentiments that polls reveal are, are, are embraced by majorities and promise to carry out that agenda. And huge numbers of people in 2008 were persuaded by the Obama campaign that electing Barack Obama would result in those policies being implemented. And, and in fact, you know, I think the most significant thing about the 2008 campaign with respect to the Occupy Wall Street movement is that the Obama candidacy really specifically targeted those people who had decided that working within the political system was no longer um, worthwhile or that it, they, who, who had always concluded that it wasn't worthwhile. People who, you know, as Obama described them, were sort of wallowing in this corrosive cynicism. And that's what all of this, you know, stuff about Yes We Can and, and Audacity of Hope was designed to do, was to persuade specifically those people that there was a, a reason, there was a value to them devoting their time, energy, and resources to electing a Democratic candidate, that things would actually change. And when they did that and they saw that nothing changed, that everything continued as is, that the same factions continued to be served, that was really what increased the cynicism more than it had ever existed before. And it's what led so many people to the conclusion, well, if it didn't happen here, it's never going to happen. And now I realize that the only viable course of action is to work outside of this system, is to dissent from it and to change the political culture rather than working for one party or the other. And I think that that, that is a huge energy behind this movement is the anger and disappointment and sense of betrayal that people feel from 2008. My last question for you, Glenn, is uh, do you think that Occupy Wall Street will play a real role in the 2012 election? And let me, let me uh, uh, qualify that by saying I don't mean offhanded references from either or both candidates when it's politically convenient to mention Occupy Wall Street. But do you think in, a, in any real way this will affect the upcoming presidential election? I do. I think, I think it'll affect it in the sense that there'll be more rhetorical attention paid to the issue of wealth and income inequality, not just offhanded remarks, as you suggested, but more time being spent on it, which is a positive thing. But I think the real impact that it possibly might uh, have is that if the Obama campaign perceives, and I think this is the real risk that they're worried about already, that so much of the energy of the youth vote and the first-time vote that drove him into office in 2008 is instead being directed 
to the Occupy movement rather than the Obama re-election 2012 campaign, then I think there's going to be a serious effort on the part of Obama to um, at least create the appearance that he's more concerned with the issues that are um, occupying the occupation movement than he actually is. And so I think you're going to start to see some greater tactical shifts um, to target those people. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, both of those major party candidates are going to need to get funding from corporate and Wall Street interest. And that's who's real. That's the real constituency that they're going to end up serving. So the, the biggest impact may be on the fact that they just give people another outlet besides electoral politics um, to express their discontent. And, and that could certainly have an, out, uh, an impact on the outcome of the election. Glenn Greenwald, of course, over at Salon.com, and the new book is with Liberty and Justice for Some. Really great to talk to you, Glenn. Keep up the great work.
Do you get a lot of junk mail? I do. Most of the junk mail I get is unsolicited credit card offers, and up until Occupy Wall Street, I used to just toss these in the bin unopened. But Occupy Wall Street got me thinking. These offers are from the same financial institutions that ruined our economy by speculating on the housing market. This isn't junk mail. This is an opportunity for a dialogue. Why? Well, see, inside every one of these credit card offers is one of these. It's a business reply mail envelope. The bank signed contracts with the post office to get these envelopes, and they only pay postage on the envelopes that get mailed back. Now, the banks are assuming that we'll use these envelopes to send in our credit card applications, but we don't want more credit cards, do we? We certainly don't want them from the big banks that caused the financial crisis. But we can use these envelopes in other ways. We can have a dialogue. So, phase one, this is the easiest. Everyone can do this. Just take the envelope, lick it, seal it, and send it back empty. It's quick, it's easy, it takes you five seconds at the mailbox every day, and it costs the bank about 25 cents. Now I know, that means banks pay less for postage than we do, but please, let, let's have that protest another day. Now phase two, if you're willing to put a little more work into it, would be to send it back full. Just take all the materials that came in the envelope, put them in there, take the envelope itself, put that in there. I mean, after all, the heavier the envelope is, the more it's going to cost them in postage. And then any other junk mail you got that day that you think might be interesting to them. Like, I got this baby products catalog, and I'll put that in there. I mean, bankers have babies, and being immoral doesn't mean you're infertile. The other thing that I do is I send them a note. I printed out a bunch of notes on my printer, and I just clip them out, and I put one in with each envelope. That way, they know that this wasn't just a miscommunication. It actually was communication. This one says, hello, big bank clerk. Please join a union. Now, phase three, if you're willing to put a little bit of money into it, and I do mean a little bit, would be a wood shim. This is a wood shim. It's, ex it's exactly what it looks like. It's a piece of wood. You can get a pack of 12 of these at a hardware store for about $1.50. Now, a wood shim, when you put that into the envelope, oh, and Put a message on it, too, so that it's actually communication. This one is hashtag OWS for Occupy Wall Street. Put the shim in the envelope, and suddenly the envelope becomes really heavy, and more importantly, it becomes rigid. Why does that matter? Well, a rigid mail piece costs more in postage to mail. That's why Netflix has to pay more money for their DVD mailers than like, you pay to send a postcard. You can go further with this idea. I think the gold standard for postage-paid protest would be something like a roofing shingle, because that's really heavy and dense and crumbly. Um, but it's important that this should be about communication. So I think that putting some sort of message, you know, clear, rational, debate, a slogan, something you saw in a good sign, I think that that matters too. Think about the scene in a mailroom at a big bank when they get a few dozen roofing shingles, a few hundred wood shims, and a few thousand empty envelopes. They're probably going to have a meeting about it. And that's the point of this. This isn't really about running up the postage bill in the big banks, although that's a nice side effect. The real effect of this is to force banks to react to us. If they start getting hundreds and thousands of weird responses to their credit card applications, well, they're going to have to have meetings. They're going to have to develop new procedures. And every hour banks spend reacting to us is an hour banks don't spend lobbying Congress on how to screw us. It's an hour banks don't spend foreclosing on our houses. So I think that that's progress. Now, 
this uh, postage paid protest sort of thing. This is no substitute for getting out into the street and making your voices heard. The Occupy Wall Street movement started in the street, and for the time being, that's where the life of this protest is. But after you've been out there lending your voice to the crowd, or if you happen to live in a city that's away from the big cities that are having major Occupy movements, go to your mailbox, spend five seconds sorting through your junk mail, and send some stuff back to these guys. If you can't Occupy Wall Street, you can at least keep Wall Street occupied. Thanks for watching. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. It's the Onion Radio News. U.S. citizens form a massive special disinterest group. This is Doyle Redland reporting. More than 3,000 U.S. citizens from across the country have banded together to create the Coalition of Unconcerned Americans. CUA Press Secretary Sarah Fisher says the time for the voices of Americans who care the least to be heard has come. Politicians are completely out of touch with those Americans who are completely out of touch with politics. It is possible for a few people to make an indifference. The CUA was formed by Mark Berger and Sophia Richardson, two similarly non-civic-minded Wilmington, Delaware residents, whose paths crossed February 3rd when both did not vote in their state's primary. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at Movement now spreading from the streets to foreclosed homes. Occupy Rochester, that's in New York State, has been holding protests outside each uh, one such home and also the local Wells Fargo branch demanding the bank negotiate with its owners. Earlier this week, following public outcry, that family there was given an additional 30 days to work out an agreement. Occupy Oakland now trying to do the same for 75-year-old Josephine Tolbert, who fell behind on her mortgage payments after she was diagnosed with cancer. Police there blocking the entrance to her home. Speaking of Occupy Oakland, joining me now as promised, Scott Olson, the Iraq War vet whose skull was fractured at an Occupy Oakland rally in late October. Scott, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad we can do this. Thanks for your time tonight. How do you keep glad to be here? How are you feeling and uh, how people who saw that interview that you did over the weekend at uh, Occupy Oakland, how, how, how fast are you getting better? Let me put it that way. Um, 
It, it's difficult to, to say. Every time I run into somebody new who I haven't seen for quite a while, they're surprised mm -hmm. how much I'm doing better. Um, every time I check in with my doctors, every time I check in with anybody, any friends, um, they see the change faster than I, I do. Mm. I would imagine that's true. Must be. Is it? Do you find that frustrating, or has the, the the support that you've gotten nationwide actually contributed to this process? Not to have everybody pat themselves on the back, but I mean, has it been of any practical value to you? Well, it's frustrating at times, um, but the support has been such such a great help to me. Uh, just going home and reading a new card, I've still got a whole stack to get through. Mm. And p p support from vet groups and like VFTP or IVAW has mm -hmm. been outstanding. And it's been helping me get way, way, way better. How, how clear a picture do you have of how much support there is and how much you've come to represent not just Occupy Oakland, but Occupy in general? Well, I mean, I've got this idea, but it's, it's a bit hard to get my head around. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was out on the streets of San Francisco today, and th three or four people who... You, you wouldn't expect to be involved with uh, politics. You know, they recognized me and they sought me. And it's, it's always a surprise to me. Yeah, I would think so. Um, what, what, what does that mean to you when, when people think of you as part of maybe the essence of Occupy? I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's important to me because you know, I, I am a part of it. We're, we all are, and it's important for us all to be a part of it and um, embody those values that uh, we hold hold true. Tell me what the th what what was it particularly that that drew you to Occupy Oakland in the first place? Um, just the uh, just really the the community involved and the diversity of opinions you know everybody you talk to there is going to have a different opinion and and you can always learn something new from talking to somebody else uh i don't know if you know this name sergeant shamar thomas huh? oh good well then you know what he did here in new york and he yeah. became famous for it because he stood up to the cops and he said with with real vigor but real politeness towards them you know th there's no excuse for you to behave like this this is not a battlefield he knew battlefields you know battlefields does the degree of militarization of the police at occupy protests obviously that had an impact on you personally but in a broader sense does it shock you that you're seeing this on the streets of this country i don't know it's on on one hand it shocks uh, me a lot. On the other hand, it, it doesn't because our nation's uh, peace officers have been militarized mm -hmm. over the past 10 years um, to combat terrorism, but they're combating anybody with an opinion.
Uh, relative to your opinion and these protests, uh, do you have plans, you have hopes about resuming participating in some, some regular way, or what do you want to do with this as it goes forward? I'm, I'm excited to get back involved, and I'm trying to uh, plan on how, how I can get back involved and be an asset th to be the Occupy movement. But, you know, I have to make sure I t yeah. stay safe. Well, you're already an asset. You don't have to worry about, about <laughs> achieving that. You're sort of like a practical, in-the-field kind of thing. Let, let me sum it up this way. What, what do you want, having been through all that you've been through involved in this, what do you want to see Occupy achieve, long-term, short-term, however, however you want to put it? I mean, really, I just want to see more people get involved with real democracy mm -hmm. to build a a democratic nation. Um, with that, um, I think we need to end our wars, all of them, and that'll do our country a great surface. Scott Olson, uh, we wish you, all of us here, everybody's watching, uh, we wish you the best as your recovery continues, and obviously we, we thank you for your bravery in getting involved in this and, and for doing these interviews, and of course thank you for, for your original service as well. Thank you, Seath. Okay, thank you, sir. It actually turns out, by the way, that the pepper spraying UC Davis cop, Lieutenant John Pike, our good friend, casual pepper spray, pe spray cop, is accused of, uh, was accused of making an anti-gay epithet. He was actually involved in a discrimination lawsuit, which alleged that he used an anti-gay slur against an openly gay officer. This is amazing. The racial and sexual discrimination lawsuit specifically singled out John Pike, who's a retired Marine sergeant, for using a profane anti-gay epithet against a police officer or an epitaph, as many people incorrectly like to call mm. epithets. Uh, the case ended in a $250,000 settlement. So again, with, with Herman Cain, if you believe that there would be $35,000 paid for something where there was absolutely no discrimination, I happen to disagree with you. If you believe $250,000 would be paid in a case where Lieutenant John Pike, casual pepper spray cop, did absolutely nothing anti-gay, you're probably drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. That's my sense of the thing. And the cop who was at the center of this said, uh, uh, Officer Calvin Chang said, when I saw that, I was shocked as anybody else, but not surprised when I realized who it was. When he saw that it was John Pike casually pepper spraying everybody, it didn't even surprise a fellow officer. A fellow mm -hmm. officer was not in any way moved by hearing that John Pike was casually pepper spraying a crowd of 20 people. It's like, oh my God, who is doing the oath? Oh, oh, it's, it's John. John. Oh, this is no big deal. Oh, that's oh John. That's just John being crazy. It's John being John. Exactly. Yeah. It was like when uh, Manny Ramirez was on the Red Sox. Hey, it's Manny being Manny when he acts in an absurd way. This yeah. is just John Pike being John Pike and then getting paid administrative leave while this is looked into. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, since he's employed by the University of California system, it's the very students he brutalized that are paying for his free vacation now. Amazing. You like it, don't you, Lewis? You would like that job. You would like to be able to just pepper spray people and throw other types of food products, pizzas and whatever at people. And then since it's just a food product, you keep your $110,000 a year salary while it's being investigated. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, that's great. I'm just you know the other thing? Oh, go ahead. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious what else we're going to find in this guy's closet. Yeah, I don't know. You know the other thing? He actually received some kind of award years ago because he handled the situation well by deciding not to pepper spray someone. <laughs> I mean, have you heard anything that's absurd? He received some kind of commendation because in a situation involving a, a, some kind of person who was out of control at a hospital, I guess holding scissors or something like that, he decided... In, against his, his initial judgment, not to pepper spray them, but instead to tackle them. So he actually received an award not for pepper spraying people. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction, right? Do you know how many times I've gone out there and not bought a gun and not shot anybody? I mean, just thousands of times I haven't received a single award for deciding not to shoot people. Mm -hmm. This guy doesn't pepper spray somebody once and the guy's getting a commendation. Amazing. That's why he's on paid administrative leave. So this is how crazy it's gotten here in Fitzwalkerstan, otherwise known as Wisconsin under the reign of Scott Walker and the Fitzgerald brothers. Earlier this fall, a couple dozen of us were arrested in the Wisconsin State Assembly Gallery for merely taking pictures on a cell phone or for carrying a sign. Then on Friday, the Walker administration issued an edict that said, if you're with four or more people in the Capitol, you need a permit to demonstrate there and you need to give 72 hours notice. On top of that, you got to pay the charges for any additional police work, a bill that runs $50 an hour per officer. They're putting a price on free speech in Wisconsin, and they're trying to wall off what used to be called the People's House. Hell, if you're a family of five and you're coming to protest the fact that you've been kicked off Badger Care, you may not have the privilege. But free speech isn't supposed to be a privilege. You're not supposed to have to pay for it or ask permission for it. It's supposed to be a right. And that's why many activists plan on challenging this new policy, including the wonderful Solidarity Singers, who've been holding a sing-along every day at noon in the rotunda for 10 months now. I suppose Scott Walker's liable to have them all arrested, too, because he can't stand the heat. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Cause it's the heat 
is a fascinating story of a Washington lobbying firm uh, deciding that, hey, you know what, this Occupy Wall Street movement is actually too dangerous. So what we're going to have to do is try to undermine it. They're actually a firm called Clark, Lytle, Geduldick, and Cranford, and uh, they were lobbying for the American Banking Association. So they wrote this memo for the Banking Association, hoping to get business from them. Uh, they say, quote, if we can show they have the same cynical motivation as a political opponent, it will undermine their credibility in a profound way. So basically, they're saying, let's smear them and pretend that they're a political operation uh, that is not genuine uh, Americans looking to uh, help the system, right? In which case, they will lose credibility. Now, as I saw this, and there's some more amazing quotes on it, I thought, really? I, I was actually quite a quite surprised that they might go in this direction, right? But it turns out the American Banking Association has confirmed it. They say, yes, it is true. In fact, uh, their spokesperson, Jeff Sigmund, told Reuters, our government relations staff received the proposal, it was unsolicited, and we chose not to act on it in any way. In other words, the memo was totally real. Thank God you caught us before we paid them on it, right? And by the way, what were they looking to do? They were gonna deliver research, survey data, and plans to use the information in 60 days at a cost of $850,000. So they wanted to spend $850,000 to smear the Occupy Wall Street movement. Now, the other part of this story that's amazing and fantastic is how scared of the Occupy Wall Street movement that they are. The next set of quotes show you that. So, they say, if the movement succeeds, quote, this would mean more than just short-term political discomfort for Wall Street firms. In other words, this is serious. It could really damage the Wall Street firms. You better pay attention. Now, if that's what the lobbyists for Wall Street think, that's fantastic. You guys have a lot more power and effect than you might have even realized. They're actually scared. Here's more quotes to that effect. If vilifying the, the leading companies of this sector is allowed to become an unchallenged centerpiece of a coordinated democratic campaign, it has the potential to have very long-lasting political, policy, and financial impacts on the companies in the center of the bullseye. Saying, hey, you know what, if the Democrats wisen up and they actually use the Occupy Wall Street movement, then we could be in a lot of trouble. Then they would actually regulate us. We couldn't take these wild risks, thereby leading to the profits that your executives are getting. So if Occupy Wall Street succeeds, then these lobbyists and the banks that they're representing would have serious trouble. I love how seriously they're taking the movement to the point where they want to apparently do this important smear job against it. And then finally they write, it may be easy to dismiss OWS as a ragtag group of protesters, but they have demonstrated that they should be treated more like an organized competitor who's very nimble and capable of working the media, coordinating third-party support, and engaging office holders to do their bidding. To counter that, we have to do the same. Meaning, hey, we better act against these guys because they're coming. Ah, oh, there's nothing more that I like than that. You're, you better believe it, my friends. They are definitely coming. And by the way, who's the guys who put this memo together? Well, two of them are Sam Geduldick and Jay Cranford, who are former aides to House of Representatives Speaker John Boehner. Unsurprising, Republicans in a panic, totally working for the banking industry, trying to smear Occupy Wall Street because they're afraid it might actually work.
Hi, Jay. Uh, my name is Josh, and I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. And this really isn't uh, for air, but um, I wanted to respond to and ask you a question about uh, somebody that left a message on your latest show, the Police State Show. Uh, I believe his name was Brian Ingram. Um, he's calling from Fort Worth, and he said he was going to actually run for a state representative seat in Washington from Texas, and I wanted to be able to help him in some way. Uh, like I said, I live here in Dallas, and he said he was going to be collecting signatures to get on the ballot. I'd really like to, uh, you know, volunteer my time or my effort. Sounded like uh, the things he had to say I really agreed with. And um, I don't know, sitting around and signing Internet petitions is starting to wear a little thin as far as feeling like I'm making a difference. So um, if you can get this message to him and, and maybe get him to call me, I'd really appreciate it. And also, uh, thanks so much for the show. It's a really great show. I've really enjoyed listening to it. I, I discovered it about a month ago, and uh, I look forward every time there's a, a new episode post that I really enjoy listening to. It. So thanks, and keep up the good work. Bye. After receiving no fewer than three messages like the ones we just heard, I got in touch with Brian and asked him to call in again. Hello, Jay. This is Brian Ingram. I contacted you a few weeks ago uh, regarding my attempt to file some paperwork to run for, for Congress. I want to let you know that the Monday after Thanksgiving I did that. I filed a declaration of, of intent with my with Texas as Secretary of State. Um, and it's for the U.S. House District 12, currently held by Kay Granger. Um, and I'm going to be running as an independent. And as I mentioned in the voicemail from before, I'm going to need to collect 500 signatures from people that did not vote in the general primary on March 6th, so I can't do anything until March 7th, which will give me plenty of time to start organizing and getting the help I need. Um, if anybody would like to contact me to help me in some way or give me ideas or point me in some reading material, because I'm doing this from the get-go, just because I've taught government doesn't mean I necessarily know how to engage in it. I'm going to need all the help I can get. My email is Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ingram, I-N-G-R-A-M, at A-T-T dot net. Again, that's Brian dot Ingram at A-T-T dot net. And I will take all the help I can get. Again, thank you for having this forum and your show. And I will, I guess I'll call you regularly and give you updates of how things are going. I can't really do much of anything until March 7th except plan. And I'll be doing a lot of that in addition to my husband's duties, my fatherly duties, and teaching duties. Again, take it easy, and I hope you have a happy holiday. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Jay. Ron from outside of Philly. Just calling. I literally just finished listening to the pepper spray episode, and um, I kind of had a thought and almost a what-if scenario that I'd like, uh, you know, anybody else who was curious about it, too, their, their opinion as well. The thought was is, uh, you know, the last two uh, segments were about the top pepper spray the people at UC Davis and, you know, basically, if you've seen the video, being an asshole. And uh, my natural reaction to these things are, and what I get curious about is, is, you know, that can't happen. Somebody needs to tackle them, throw something heavy at them, and just say, hey, that, that can't happen. I'm protecting other people here. And I'm curious if people think, that's my natural instinct, that's what I get, get go to first. But I'm curious if people think that if something like that would have happened, if 
all of a sudden the video showed a very heavy object hitting that police officer and stopping the pepper spraying or somebody running up and tackling the police officer or tripping him and that stops the pepper spraying that if that would have been a net positive or a net negative thing to the Occupy movement. I'm sure you're going to have people that say, oh, it's negative, you shouldn't resort to violence, um, you shouldn't, uh, you know, you, you certainly put whoever would do that thing would be in a bad situation legally themselves for assaulting a police officer, and yada, yada, yada on bad things, which is, is legit. Um, however, in that particular case, there's really a lot of self-defense, self-defense of others, defenseless people that are being mistreated very clearly. And I wonder if it would have, you know, made even more of a spectacle and raised awareness of the movement and the viciousness associated uh, against the movement um, and be more of a positive at the end of the day. Um, so anyway, that was just a thought that, that hit me right after I finished listening to it. I'm curious if, other, if others have an opinion or, of course, yourself too. Thanks. Love your show. Keep it up. See you. Hey Jay, this is Dave Kinzer, formerly of the Watch It Burn podcast. Um, I'm working on a new project, and I was hoping to get your take on it, and if you like it, maybe some help spreading the word. Uh, I plan to go to interview members of one small Occupy group in each state and present it as a web series and a weekly online radio show. Um, I've got a Kickstarter campaign started already, and you can find more of the details there. It's called Occupying America, The Rest of Us but it's probably going to be easier to find. It's tiny, uh, tinyurl. It's tinyurl.com slash 7F55V98. And uh, I'd like to get your take on it. Um, if you'd like to email me, it's bdkinzer, K-I-N-S-E-R, at gmail.com. Um, I just got to say I'm really impressed with uh, how best of the left has come along, man. It's just I'm, I'm amazed. And uh, I really got to say I appreciate what you did for me with uh featuring watch it burn a few times there i don't think i really would have gotten the uh the attention that i did get without the exposure from you so uh, thanks again for that buddy and like i said i am really impressed with how uh how well you guys are doing there all right take it easy Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So let me tell you a little bit about the, the last voicemail we just heard from Dave Kinzer. So first of all, his nickname in the military was Godless Kinzer. And that wasn't like a secret nickname he had. He wore a badge on his back written godless kinzer and walked around uh iraq that way and so you get a little bit of a sense of uh, uh of the balls this guy has you know going into the military proudly proclaiming his atheism so that's number one and number two he was the producer of just one of the most quintessentially classic podcasts out there uh you know back in the earliest days of podcasting when at best one percent of the u.s population had ever heard of a podcast 2004 2005 2006 in that uh range he produced 20 episodes uh, of his podcast uh, the the majority of which were produced in a bunker in iraq and it's just it's like nothing you've ever heard uh you know it's um it's just the ambiance that comes through in the audio is this theater of the mind that I've never heard anywhere else, really. And, you know, because he'll be telling a story and then he'll have to wait 
while a jet takes off over his head, essentially. So, uh, you know, so it was just this classic podcast. I loved it when it was on, uh, you know, back in 2006. He, he started podcasting in April 2006, uh, a mere three months after I started this show. And I, uh, I, I played a couple of clips of his on, on uh, you know, that early edition of Best of the Left in June 2006. So his claims that I helped, uh, you know, spread the word about his show are – uh, completely overblown because I ha- hardly had any listeners at the time, I promise. Uh, so anyways, I was, I was happy to, uh, to promote him then. And, uh, and years later, when I hear that he has a new project going on, I'm happy to promote him now. So I've included, uh, the, a, a link to his Kickstarter campaign, uh, a link to his email address and a link to his original podcast. So you can go back. I really, I mean, it's, it's a blast from the past for sure. It's, it's, you know, uh, foreign policy politics circa 2006. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, but really, really interesting stuff that you should check out. It's, uh, we're, you know, we're lucky that copies of it still exist, actually. So links to all of those things are in the show notes of this episode. Definitely check that out. Uh, on his Kickstarter campaign, he has, uh, you know, about a five-minute video that explains in a little bit more detail uh, with it l- taking a little bit more time than he had on the voicemail, uh, just explaining what he wants to do. He's obviously in favor of Occupy Wall Street uh, and and wants to make a project out of it. Of course, I am totally in favor of that. And so if you have uh, interest in helping him out, then please don't forget to uh, check out the show notes of this episode and link through to his Kickstarter campaign. That is the one thing I had for you today, so I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Robert R. signed up for a Socialist Yearly membership back on June 12th, and uh, and Sean S. signed up for a Leftist Monthly membership on March 30th and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Robert and Sean and all of the members and donors who helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by helping spread the word of individual clips through your social networks. It is really, really easy to do. Just go to uh, the show notes on the website and, uh, and and the buttons are there and kind of self-explanatory. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also donate your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us so we can uh, you know, post promotional things uh, through your accounts. It's all explained before you, you know, agree to anything. Just click on the badge and, and read up about it. It's a great way to help support the show and takes no effort on your part. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Fine now, black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right. 